0: Humanistic Judaism has a foot in two camps, Judaism and ethical humanism. This recording of Rabbi Shalom looks at the reconciliation of how these movements overlap and was made several years ago, so there is no need to be concerned that Rabbi Shalom is not truly social distancing. He did not recently travel to Phoenix and is safely leading Kol Hadash tele-rabbinically. I want to tell you about a language. It was envisioned as the key to international peace. It was thought that this language would break down barriers between peoples, would open up doors to new international and inter-ethnic cooperation, would solve the intractable issues of ethnic conflict in Eastern Europe. It was a language called Esperanto. It was an invented language. It was invented by a Polish Jew named Ludwig Zamenhof, You can still see Zamenhof Street in the town in which he was born. It was based on a Latin language root system written in the Latin alphabet. It had approximately 10, maybe 12 grammatical rules, very minimal conjugations for the different forms, past and present tense. All were regular and structured and no exceptions. It was simply a matter of learning the 10 rules, learn vocabulary, you have a language. They would have conferences of Esperanto. Hundreds would attend. There would be speeches in Esperanto, poetry in Esperanto, music in Esperanto, discussions, panels, and so on. And at the end of the conference, everyone would go back to speaking Yiddish. The joke is, of course, it was designed as an international language. But it turned out that Jews, not exclusively, but largely were the ones attracted to it. And in the end, Esperanto was not a success because nobody grew up speaking Esperanto. They didn't write lullabies in Esperanto. In the end, you had to be a fanatic to speak Esperanto to your children so that they would grow up speaking Esperanto. Now, there have been such fanatics. We see them in Israel when they create the Hebrew language as a living language when it hadn't been before. But Esperanto didn't work. In the end, we have an Esperanto today, more or less. At the moment, it's English. It may turn out to be Chinese, but it's a language of business. And so we have communication across borders and boundaries, but it isn't by Esperanto. In the end, that was an ideal based on idealism, not a Jewish idealism, but also a very humanist idealism, an ideal that human beings could find common ground and common communication through, indeed, a common language. Yesterday, and even this morning, I was in Phoenix. Yesterday was a relatively cool day in Phoenix. It was only 94 degrees. It had been 104 the day before, so it felt like a, a cool front had moved in. It was a meeting about designing a humanist think tank. There are conservative think tanks, and liberal think tanks, and defense policy think tanks, and libertarian think tanks. But there has never really been a humanist think tank. And could we find enough common ground among the many, many, many humanist organizations to actually have enough to talk about to make a think tank? We have representatives at the meeting from the American Humanist Association, which was having its annual conference in Phoenix, from the Humanist Institute, from the American Ethical Union, from the Institute for Humanist Studies, which is not the Humanist Institute, From the Unitarian Universalist Humanists, from the Society for Humanistic Judaism, and from the International Institute for Secular Humanistic Judaism. Of course, there were some groups not represented, (laughs) believe it or not. The American Atheists didn't send anybody. The Center for Inquiry didn't send anybody. The Freedom from Religion Foundation didn't send anybody. Um, The uh, Skeptics Organization didn't send anybody. Uh, Fill in the blank. Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers didn't send anybody. The Secular Students Association didn't send anybody. The Campus Freethought Alliance, which is not the Secular Students Association, didn't send anybody. Okay. You understand now that Jews are not the only ones that can't get together (laughs) and organize a a community. Right. It's uh, it's the same case for humanists. In fact, there's even another strand of humanism. that's a more libertarian style humanism. Most of the humanism you'll find in these groups tends to be left wing progressive political humanism. But uh, you can find organizations organized around Reason Magazine, which promotes itself as free minds and free markets. So it's more libertarian on both political and also on social and intellectual issues, Uh, and so on and so on. So you you can see all these different groups. You have the American Ethical Union, founded over 120 years ago by a former rabbi, Felix Adler, still largely Jewish, but by membership if you talk about biology. But in terms of program, it's exclusively about ethics and ethical action. In fact, they don't care whether they're an atheist or not, they just wind up with a lot of them because of their focus on action independent of theology. The American Humanist Association, founded closer to 80 years ago as an umbrella humanist organization, is actually fulfilling that role now more than it used to. The Institute for Humanist Studies opened in Albany, New York, to provide high-level intellectual programming for humanists on the internet. The Humanist Institute, founded as a coalition effort between the Society for Humanistic Judaism and the American Humanist Association and the American Ethical Union to try and train some leadership for our communities. And then, of course, our own institute and our own society. Okay, You understand it's a little bit Meshuggah to have all these groups that are more or less representing a similar background. Now, there are personality clashes behind some of the divisions. Surprise, surprise. Uh, There are institutional histories behind some of them. There are stylistic differences, whereas the American Humanist Association would not define itself as religious because they are not religious or even anti-religious. The American Ethical Union would clearly define themselves as on the religious spectrum. And they would say, our religion is ethics. That's our focus. We also sort of straddle that fence where we define ourselves as part of the Jewish community. We want to be on the panels and the rabbi discussions. We organize as congregations with services and a Sunday school. But if you ask our membership, are you religious, you might get some confusing. If you ask people, do you do things religiously with a sense of awe and a sense of routine every single time you say a blessing exactly the same way? Again, not quite what our membership tends to do. So. We live in both worlds, but we also live in the Jewish world and the humanist world. And this is the split personality we're going to explore tonight because in some ways we present this general humanist world with a challenge. None of them define themselves by ethnic origin or by cultural identity or by religious tradition. The closest you might get are the Unitarian Universalist humanists, which tend to be church organized, but even there, they have some battles within their own denomination over how important the humanist strain of Unitarianism will be. But certainly with the other groups, the fact that we persist in our Jewishness is problematic. I'll give you one example. Paul Kurtz has been the longtime chairman of the Center for Inquiry, which uh, publishes an, uh, a very good magazine called Free Inquiry. It has a, a, public, a publications house called Prometheus Books, and among other books, published uh, Rabbi Dan Friedman's book some years ago, Jews without Judaism, Um, so it's been a very successful organization. Again, one of those personality-split-founded organizations. Paul Kurtz himself is of a Jewish background. He was born Jewish. But there's nothing in anything you'll read about him that indicates that or in anything that he's done that indicates that. He has no connection whatsoever to his Jewish identity, except for this. When he first founded his separate organization, he called it the Council for Democratic and Secular Humanism. The acronym spells Kodesh, which means holy in Hebrew. When it was pointed out to him, he changed the name. (laughs) He didn't want to have it somewhere. But it's the one trace you could find maybe of someone. But it wasn't even conscious. So the point is, there are a number of people involved in the humanist world who were raised Jewish, but have no connection to it. And so the fact that we persist in our Jewishness is problematic for them, because it doesn't fit with their sense of what humanism really is. You see, for them, humanism is a philosophical stance. It's a belief system. It's a philosophy of life. It defines how you live, but in many ways, it's problematic to persist in an ethnic identity that could provide a line of division. The basic principle of humanism is that you believe in humanity as the measure of everything, the measure of ethics, the measure of what constitutes community and the good of a community, the path to knowledge through human knowledge, through science and reason. The source of values and what defines whether something is ethical or not is how it affects other people and also, of course, the natural world as it affects people. And of course, most importantly, the need to work together to improve the world because nothing beyond this world is going to do it for us. I mean, I'll read to you an example of humanist philosophy from the back of your service, from the older services. We believe that human beings possess the intelligence and wisdom to determine the purpose and course of their lives without the need for supernatural guidance or protection. We use human reason, initiative, and courage to formulate our, and achieve our noblest aspirations. Now, there's nothing in that that a humanist would disagree with. Human beings have intelligence. can decide their lives. They don't need supernatural guidance. Human reason and courage help define our aspirations. Another point, we believe in the fundamental importance of individual responsibility to shape lives of significance and dignity. Again, no humanist would disagree with that. Our other two points, we believe we are Jewish by virtue of our participation in the history of the Jewish people. We encourage our children to value their Jewish identity. Well, that's, that's problematic, you see. They would say you're uh, needlessly nostalgic. You need to look forward and not back. Now, our challenge is that when we want to work together as humanists, it often means breaking down barriers. Because, after all, to have a presence, you need to have some kind of common ground and at least a common organization. I remember having a conversation with a woman who was very interested in our congregation and what we stood for, except she said, I don't like organized religion. So I said to her, first of all, we're not that organized. But second of all, If only everyone who didn't like organized religion actually joined something, then they would have a voice. (laughs) But if we're all people who don't like joining things, we don't have a voice. We can't make a point. So if our goal is to have a larger group, then theoretically you'd want as large a group as possible. And subdividing would be a problem. When you look at the general humanist world, they come from many backgrounds, many as Catholics, Some ex-Protestants, they are white and black and Asian and Indian, and yes, plenty of Jews. And for them, the attraction of the general humanist world, the organized general humanist world, or what I call universal humanist world, the attraction for them is a sense of shared belief and shared purpose. Now, they do have their own challenge. And their challenge is, how do you create a sense of community when you're from all these different cultures? Are ideas enough? I mean, is being part of a lecture society a philosophical society enough to create a feeling of community, a sense of warmth? Can you create a sense of community life? For example, Sherwin-Wine would ask this question all the time. What are your holidays going to be? I mean, are solstice and equinox really enough when we live a life so disconnected from the natural rhythms of the world? You know, between air conditioning in Phoenix and central heating in Illinois, the outside world can impact us, but not in the same way as it used to when the solstice and the equinox with the major events in the calendar. So what do you pick? What do you pick? Darwin Day? Around Darwin's birth? I mean, there's even a winter solstice celebration that has been attempted. It's called Human Light. It's about enlightenment. And what do you do? Around the end of December, you light lights. I've seen it, right? (laughs) Or putting lights on the house. I've seen it. And in some ways, it has a feeling that is just artificial in a way that doesn't fly. I mean, there are things that we do that are artificial, too. But in this case, it just doesn't seem to have critical mass of believability. It seems so obviously modeled on what already is there, that it creates a challenge of how do you create a real meaningful sense of ritual, but certainly community out of all these diverse backgrounds. Here's the challenge that we pose to them, but also that in some ways we pose to ourselves. It's the question that got an email response from people just reading the description in the shofar. It's why be Jewish? Why bother still being Jewish? If you believe in human reason, you believe in human responsibility, you believe in human freedom, you believe in treating all people equally, that the Jews are no better or no worse than any other people, then why not join with as many people as possible and simply be human? Now, all too often in our life in the Jewish community, we get the question from the other side, where they would say, if being Jewish is religious, being Jewish is about God, then if you're not religious, then why be Jewish? But this is a different question. This is, why choose to segregate yourself? Why do you persist in your stubborn difference in not just being a person? Now, <laughs> I was part of an email discussion of this question once, and a friend of mine wrote it very clearly. She said, it would be marvelous if all peoples in the world would lose their different ethnic diversi- uh, diversity and differences, would lose their separate languages and religions, and all merge into one happy human family. The Jews will go number 12. You see, in the past, like Esperanto, we were always number one. And then we look behind us. We were still number one, and only. So let's let the Bosnians go first this time. And then we'll have the Hutus. And then maybe the, uh, I don't know, the North Koreans. And then we'll say Native Americans. And then, okay, and then we'll go number 12, all right? You see, the point is that ethnic identity persists. And it can even be a good thing. And so rather than leave behind all differences, maybe what we need to do is find a way to live in our differences in a way that's open and welcoming, but also in a way that gives us a broader perspective on the world. Now, the short answer to why be Jewish is why not? Or who are you to tell me I can't be? I and mean, this, this is the answer we can give to both sides. When the religious say you can't be Jewish, we'd say, oh, yeah, <laughs> I am. And then when the non-religious, the humanist side would say you're, you know, why are you still Jewish? I am, why can't I be? After all, we've been a stiff-necked people for a long time. You know, that goes back to the uh, biblical stories. It's another way of saying we're a pain in the neck. And you may know the Benny Goodman joke that uh, some people think he's a pain in the neck, but other people have a lower opinion of him. There have always been negative reasons to be Jewish or to insist on being Jewish. You could say that the anti-Semites don't care. They'll get you anyways. That's the Hitler definition. You could take the existentialist approach. Well, I'm stuck with it, so I might as well figure out what it means. I was born Jewish, and I am Jewish, so all right, I guess I'll figure that out. Or you could just be stubborn to be stubborn. I'm not going to let Hitler win, so damn it, I'm going to stay Jewish. Now, none of those is really a way to build a positive identity. (laughs) They're all based on a kind of anger and letting other people define you. But I want to give you three positive reasons. This doesn't define the only reasons why to be Jewish, but here are three positive reasons that are respectable from a humanist perspective. Okay. The first is that there is tremendous beauty in cultural diversity. There are some things that are unique to Jewish culture, or if not unique to Jewish culture, distinctive in the way that Jewish culture has expressed them, like a Hanukkah service, like a menorah, like a sharing of wine in a kiddush cup. In many ways, cultural diversity in all of its forms are specific human responses to the realities of human existence. People are born, we need a ritual. People grow up, we need a celebration. People die, we need to market. We remember them and we miss them. We need a time to think about it. Now, you would be very hard pressed to find a humanist who would say that we need to wipe out all distinctive Native American culture. And Latinos should have no distinctive celebrations that are part of Latino culture. They should just be human. And the Japanese need to stop with the Shinto and the pagodas and the kimonos, and they just need to be like everybody else. Now, you never find a humanist who would say that. So if other cultures have a right to preserve their culture, then why not Jews? Jewish humor. Jewish holidays, Jewish languages, Jewish food, even some Jewish ideas. You know, I go to Board of Rabbis meetings all the time in in the Chicago area, and I went in Michigan as well. And it struck me uh, a couple of meetings ago that there's something remarkable about a community that organizes itself around scholars, and in fact supports the scholars doing learning so that they will come back to the general population and share what they've learned. And so the Jewish United Fund pays for scholars to come in to talk to the board of rabbis and to do learning sessions. And the board of rabbis on their own get together and do learning sessions. And the rabbis themselves have continued to study. Many of them get PhDs as they go on through the rabbinate because they continue to study. They don't stop learning. They don't figure they're done in seminary. And our community supports that, in fact, encourages it. I think that's a wonderful thing. I mean, there's a reason why we have an outsized impact even in the general humanist world. Because we have people who are making a living at it. (laughs) Because our communities are set up to support them. And many of the other humanist organizations charge $35 a year in dues. And so they can pay someone $1,000 a year to do work for the community. And so they have to earn a living doing something else, which inevitably distracts attention and doesn't give them the time to spend on the community and also on the ideas. So that's a distinctive Jewish connection, a distinctive Jewish contribution to human culture that I like. I mean, obviously, I like it, but I, I think it's a marvelous thing. And so there's a beauty of diverse culture that's worth preserving. And if we allow other cultures, then why not the Jews? Second argument, ethnic and cultural identities persist no matter what you do, both from outside definition, that's the anti Semite perspective, but also internally. People like their connection to their culture. Frankly, universal humanity can just be too darn big. I mean, think about a university. There's a reason why fraternities and clubs are popular. Because if you go to a school, I was in Tempe, Arizona, with Arizona State. You go to a school with 30,000, 40,000 people there, you can't live in 40,000 people. You have to break it down into a manageable size, into a chunk of shared interest or shared background or shared drinking stories or whatever you make it. It's better to accept the reality that we need smaller units and that culture persists, that ethnic identity persists, and let's celebrate that identity with a broader perspective. Let's avoid chauvinism. You see, there's nothing wrong with saying Jews are good. It's very different from saying Jews are better, which is also different from saying Jews are the best. Now, in many parts of traditional Jewish life, in the liturgy that you would read in the Bible itself, it's very clearly stated. Jews are the best, or occasionally Jews are the worst, because they should be the best and they've disappointed me. So now they're the worst. But there's clearly a sense of Jewish chauvinism. There's no question about it. And so we have to work against it. And it shows up in secularized forms, too. You know, The person who's surprised to find a comedian who isn't Jewish. He's so funny, how could he not be Jewish? He's so smart, how could he not be Jewish? Or meeting non-Jewish people that are smart and saying, Wow, he's so smart. See, we have to to work on that. It's part of a routine, a rhythm that we've built. So we want to get behind the chauvinism, get behind the separatism, get it behind us. And we want to learn from outside cultures and outside philosophy. I mean, we had readings in the service today that were not written by Jews, but they're beautiful. They're inspirational. They're powerful. And Frankly, if you look back at Jewish history, we've always learned from outside people and beliefs. We've always been influenced by philosophers, by poets. You go back to the Middle Ages and you have Maimonides learning from Aristotle in the Arabic translation. And you have medieval Spanish poets writing beautiful Hebrew poetry on Arabic models of drinking wine and celebrating women and occasionally boys and certainly even reflecting on the meaning of death and how final it can be. This is evolution. This is the way of all living things. But we have to accept that the reality of the persistence of cultural identity is something we must make the best of and even take advantage of. And the third reason, and this is perhaps the strongest argument, the strength of having roots. You know, the accusation against Jews was that we were rootless cosmopolitans, right? We simply wandered around with no connection to the place where we were, with no connection to ancestral tradition to the farm, to the family, to the land, to the folk. We were the cosmopolitans who wanted a universal culture, a universal city that had no allegiance, no history. Now, Jews were cosmopolitans. We have been from even before the word was coined, I believe. And yet, at the same time, having a sense of roots is very important to us. We want to know where we're from. But it turns out that that's true for everybody. Everybody. How many adopted children want to find their birth parents? How many people whose parents didn't tell them what they were growing up find out at the last moment and want to learn more, they want to explore? How many people, I mean, the story of the Muranos is a great example. There are people whose families lit candles in closets for years, for decades, for generations. And at one point, one member of the family finally learned enough about Judaism to say, hey, wait a minute. Why are we lighting candles in a closet on Friday night? What's that all about? And they generally don't simply say, well, okay, fine, so we were Jewers way back when, but who cares? It's a very important discovery for them, and they want to explore what that heritage means and possibly something they would want to adopt. The sense of rootedness is very important in the world that we live in today because it's increasingly mobile and changing. I mean, many of us have kids who live elsewhere. Mine, not yet. But I live elsewhere from my parents. They live in a different city. It happens all the time. And mobility is a good thing because it leads to better freedom, right? If you're stuck where you are and everyone's always watching and they've always known you from when you were two, it's hard to feel free. So, mobility means freedom, it means satisfaction, but it also means disconnection. You know, you can pursue your desires and find them, but you can also wind up lonely, in need of a babysitter. Missing the grandparents. Missing a sense of where you came from. Having to learn new streets all over again and again and again. It's good to know where you come from. It's good to know who you are. And it's good to maintain connections with your family. You know, one of the challenges that many in the humanist world face is they've cut off their roots so strongly from where they were raised that it's tough to maintain good relations with the family. Now, we may be more problematic (laughs) for some families, Because we maintain a connection, but we do it in our own way, on our own terms. But at a minimum, we have a common vocabulary. We've said to them that our origins are important to us. In fact, they are so important to us that we aren't willing to give them to you. We're willing to take ownership of them ourselves, to mold them ourselves, to live in them ourselves. So these are three rationales of why be Jewish. The beauty of diverse culture and the beauty of Jewish culture that ethnic and cultural identity persists. You can't wipe it out. And most importantly, it gives you a sense of strength and rootedness. It's what you call starting with a broader perspective. Starting where you are, being rooted where you are, and looking out at the wider world, instead of having your feet in the clouds and your head in the ground. You see? You try and fly, you're going to fall. You need your feet rooted somewhere. And from there, you can look down at your feet if you want, as some people do in the closed-minded orthodoxies. But you can also have your feet rooted and your eyes looking up. What does this mean for our identity? One of our strengths is that we celebrate the real source of our inspiration. If we learn from it, we admire philosophy and poetry and literature from the wider world of human culture. There's no reason not to use it. Sometimes we find that our allegiances are horizontal and not vertical. You know, all too often, religions get categorized into vertical silos. There's all the Jews and all the all the Christians, and all the Muslims, and all the Buddhists, and so on. But all too often, our allegiances, where we have commonalities, are much more horizontal. And so a liberal Unitarian and a liberal Methodist might have a lot more common ground with us over here in the Jewish silo than the Orthodox Jews would. And the Orthodox Jews and the Greek Orthodox Church might have a lot in common. When if you look at a Greek Orthodox priest, he looks like a rabbi, right? It's hard to tell the difference. And if you ask them about their perspective on gay marriage, you'll get a very similar answer. So the point is that sometimes we need to see the commonalities and celebrate the commonalities beyond our silo of the Jews. We have a foot in both camps. We are both humanists and Jewish. And sometimes you will hear that sitting on a fence is a very uncomfortable position. Right? I mean, the image is somewhat uncomfortable. But in our case, it's the best of both worlds. The grass is greener on both sides of that fence. We can bring the wisdom of humanism to the Jewish world, And we can bring the beauty of a Jewish identity to the world of humanism, showing people they can have their Judaism and their humanism too. And I'll conclude with an example of a story. The current chair of the Humanist Institute is a man named Warren Wolf. His wife is named Linda. They live in central Ohio. And Linda was raised more or less nothing. But she discovered very late in her life, I believe even as her father was dying, that he was, in fact, Jewish. It was something she had never known. And so she's begun to explore her Jewish identity. She's, in fact, gotten involved with a small humanistic Jewish chavura in the Columbus area. And she's found it amazingly rich and rewarding to learn about Jewish history in general, the history of her family, the history of even secular Jews of the past century that speak in words that she understands. It's consistent with her humanist philosophy because she's found humanistic Judaism. But it also gives her a sense of roots she never had before. It's been very meaningful to her. And that's the role that we provide. And last, I want to read to you a poem that I wrote, but it's okay. Uh, Sherman Wine uh, occasionally at weddings would cite an ancient Hebrew poet and then read one of his own poems. And when someone in the audience called him on it, he said, well, I'm old. (laughs) I'm ancient, so I won't even claim that. But here's a poem that appeared in our uh, new Rosh Hashanah, one of our new Rosh Hashanah services. It's called Jewish and Human Too. Just be a person, says one voice. All these borders and boundaries, these cities and ethnicities, they are walls between people, barriers to break through, not positive connections of mature affection. I had higher aspirations for you. Be a person. Affirm a common humanity. That is your best identity. Who are you if not a Jew? Asks another. Your parents, your family, your name, your holiday, they give you away. Your heart's feeling at the sounds of your youth. Your language, your sentiments betray a deeper truth. So you doubt, question, challenge, challenge, challenge. Nothing is new under the sun, we wrote. So deny tradition a veto or even a vote. There's little you can do. You're a Jew. In the old tradition, both are true. See the world from the particular. Be particular with a wider view. Jewishness, humanity, two eyes give depth and clarity. The capacity to see, to weep, to smile, to emote beyond word or culture. Each eye is beautiful and flawed and needed in its own way for its own ends. Know who you are and make that, transform that, live that in a spirit of full humanity. The simple solution, a mensch is a person, the fullest kind, to a T. Yiddish says it most efficiently, being Jewish is as human as we make it to be. This was an archive episode from Kol Hadash. On behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kohadash, I'm Ken Burke, and thanks for listening.